Good morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh, good, good. Good morning. Is there anyone here this morning? (laughs) Holiday club mode. Right, okay, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, Just a little thing. Uh, Actually, you... uh, uh, pads. I do do a little bit of organising for uh, Holiday Club. I don't just stand up there and uh, make a fool of myself. I don't know if you ever realised that before, but I just thought I'd put you right on that. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that it's a new day. Father, thank you that with a new day comes new blessings. And Father, we pray that this morning you would give us eyes to see and perceive and ears to hear and understand and hearts that are open to your word. Father, I thank you that your word is everlasting and it changes us, Lord God, as we come into your presence. And Father, we ask for your presence this morning and for your manifest power. Father, we pray that you'd presence yourself here amongst us, that we will know that this morning we've met with the living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, the name above every other name. Amen. 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 So, okay. So, I thought perhaps to start off with, I'd just go through a quick reminder of what's gone on before this passage so that we can get some kind of context. Uh, Because a passage taken out of context is a pretext. And a pretext is a bad text. So we want to get it into context, because if we've got the context, then we might begin to understand a little bit more about what this passage is speaking about. Because I think, actually, this passage is more to us than just something that we can refer to on a historical basis. But I actually think, the more I've prayed into it, that there's a spiritual application that we can apply to our own lives today. And in fact, all the scriptures like that. You know, we, we shouldn't really read scripture as if it's a sort of history book, but the word of God is living and active, is sharper than a two-edged sword, amen? It doesn't change from generation to generation. For all eternity, the word of God shapes us and molds us if we take it into our hearts. So anyway, where we are at the moment... Uh, Before this passage, let's go back a little bit. Jacob has stolen his brother Esau's blessing uh, from their father Isaac. Esau was the firstborn, so the blessing really should have gone to him. But Jacob, living up to his name, which means deceiver, deceived his brother, deceived his father, and took the blessing for himself. And once the blessing was given, there was no way that it could be taken back. So understandably, Esau is really angry at this. And vows to kill Jacob in revenge. So Jacob is sent away because his mother's overheard this conversation that Esau's been having. And he's gone to live with his uncle, uh, his mother's brother, Uncle Laban. So anyway, 20 years has passed. Uh, Jacob now has uh, two wives, two maidservants, 11 sons, a daughter, uh, lots of cattle, lots of servants, and the 20 years has passed by and he has become exceedingly rich, exceedingly rich. God has really blessed him. And now the time has come for him to go back home and to face his brother Esau. A lot of water has passed under the bridge by this time, but now his past is about to catch up with him and he's afraid. In our passage today, we're at the point where 
It's the night time before the showdown. And we read in verse 22 that Jacob sent his wives and children ahead of him, everyone and everything, in fact, and now he's alone. And I don't want you to forget that because that is a significant little bit of information. He's all on his own. And it's another one of those pivotal moments in the Bible. It's another one of those moments where something is going to change. You see, the thing is, at this moment in time, all his wealth... All his family have gone. All his ability to manipulate and deceive the traits that have gotten him through so many trials are no longer there. His deceptive resourcefulness is of no benefit to what he's about to experience because now it's crunch time and he's about to get to grips with God or rather God is about to get to grips with him. He's about to wrestle with a mysterious man. But who is this man? Some say it's the angel of God. But I would say that this is what's known theologically as a Christophany. And we've seen one or two of these previously in the passage. They're Old Testament appearances of Jesus. You see, the thing is, is Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. And when you think about it, really, logically, it's, it's kind of... It's a bit silly to sort of like think that, you know, Jesus had no part to play in Old Testament, the Old Testament story until the New Testament. Because there are many times when we see Jesus appearing in the form of the angel or as a man, but he appears at pivotal moments. And one of the things that makes me, well, a couple of things that makes me think that this is Jesus is because for one, for one thing, uh, angels are messengers and they don't have the authority to pronounce blessings on people, yet this man does. And angels don't have the authority to change someone's name, but this man does. And the way that this name is changed is highly significant because it's not just the name that changes, it's it's the identity that goes with it. But we'll look at that a little bit later. So they wrestle. That night, night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Japog. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak, all night. Some wrestling match. When I was a kid, I grew up about two miles from here in a place called Coley. And funnily enough, Last week, I was working in someone's house whose back garden virtually backed on to the back garden of the house that my dad lived in when I was about six years old. And it was so weird because so many memories came flooding back to me as I walked around the streets. In fact, I was working in a house that was opposite the primary school that I used to go to. It's a very different area now. But when I was a child, there must have been at least 60 or 70 kids that lived in an area less than half a mile square. The place was crawling with us, and we used to get up to all sorts of stuff. And the thing that I used to like more than anything was fighting. Or we all did, actually. We loved loved to fight. We loved to fight with the Catesgrove kids and Southcote kids and all that sort of thing. And when we weren't fighting, we were practicing our fighting skills. And one of the things that we used to do was wrestle. And the bigger kids, I remember this because I, I was looking at the green and it all came flat. The bigger kids would organize the wrestling matches and they would tell you who you had to wrestle with. 
And sometimes these wrestling matches could go on for quite a considerable length of time because let me tell you, no one wants to give up in a wrestling match, okay? Especially when there's about 30 or 40 kids all stood around, you know, you're going to lose face. The interesting thing about wrestling, it's not just the wrestling, there's a lot of talking that goes on during wrestling. And uh, the one word that you really want to hear uttered from your opponent more than anything is submit. Because that's what wrestling is all about, isn't it? Getting someone to say, I submit. You learn a lot about someone in a wrestling match. You learn about how tenacious they are, how weak they are. You learn about their weak points. You learn how to get into their head and all the rest of it. You can tell a lot about a person through a wrestling match. Because when you're wrestling with someone, you're about as close to someone as you can possibly get. You're down in the dirt, in the dust, in the mud. You know, this is, this is where the rubber really hits the road. There's no, there's, no, there's no way of escaping a wrestling match because once someone's got you in a headlock, you've got to try and get out of that headlock. Now, Jacob, as we know, his name means deceiver because that's who he was. He had a lot of experience when it came to wrestling. Did you know that? A lot of experience. Do you know where he got his experience? In the womb. Because the Bible says that when Jacob was in the womb with his brother Esau, they wrestled in the womb. And who was born first? It was Esau. And the Bible tells us that when Esau came out of the womb, what was Jacob doing? He was still wrestling. He was still holding on to the leg of his brother as they came out of the womb. So Jacob had that in him right from the very beginning. He was a wrestler right at the very beginning, right when he was conceived, right in the womb. He had past experience. And so there's something about Jacob's character that we learn here that we don't often think about. He was more than just a deceiver. He was tenacious. And when we look through that 20 years that he spent with his uncle, my goodness, was he ever tenacious. I mean, look, to begin with, he fell in love with Rachel, didn't he? But in order to marry Rachel, he had to work for seven years to get her. I never worked for seven years to get Lynn. It would have probably taken me 27 years to get Lynn, because Lynn's dad didn't like me. But seven years, and then after the seven years, the deceiver gets deceived, and he ends up, I don't know how this happened, but he ends up marrying Rachel. Uh, Not Rachel, uh, Leah, sorry. Uh, Leah he wasn't too keen on because she had weak eyes. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it probably means that she wasn't much of a looker, basically. So anyway, he then gets to marry Rachel as well, but he's got to work another seven years, 14 years. I mean, in total, 20 years it took him to accumulate his wealth. That takes some stickability, doesn't it? That takes tenacity. That's That's not the hallmark of someone that gives in easily. So anyway, he's tenacious. But this wrestling match, I think, was more than a physical encounter. You see, this was God doing more than overcoming Jacob with a headlock and a half Nelson. This was, in the words of one commentator, the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. The magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. I reckon there was a lot of talking going on at the time. And as I said, I think the word that God wanted to hear was submit. 
It took a while, but the best move was kept till last. Jacob submitted. He had wrestled with God, and now he had the limp to prove it. So what's the lesson? To know God, we've got to get to the point where all that we know, all that has ever gone before, all that's ever happened in our lives comes down to a point, that one pivotal point where it's him or nothing. He'll win and you'll lose, but it'll be the sweetest defeat you'll ever know because out of that defeat will come victory. That's how it is with God. Think of the cross. If ever there was a moment in time when defeat seemed assured, God, in his mercy, snatched victory out of the jaws of defeat. There's no defeat in God. There's only victory. You know, the night that I got saved was on the 6th of October in 1990, which is 30 years nearly now. It's flown by. But that night, I really felt like I'd gone through the ringer. You know, looking back on it now, I really realized that that night I'd wrestled with God without me even realizing it. Because when I sat on my chair that night with all those other people, 200 people or so, not knowing anything about God and not even really understanding why I was even there in the first place, I was kind of deceived into going there, really, when I think about it. Because, well, basically, I was told if you don't go to this, uh, this service, your marriage is probably going to be over. So actually, that wasn't a deception. That was true. Because I'd got to the point in my life, really, where I couldn't really carry on the way I was living. And I was sat in that, that room with all those other people, and God really worked me over that night. You know, everything, my past. You see, the thing is, is like, <clears throat> your past always catches up with you, doesn't it? You know, it doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter how far you go. There's always things that you've got to deal with in your life. And my past had caught up with me that night. And God made me, made me look at myself, made me own up to the things that I'd done, made me acknowledge the kind of person that I was, the things that I'd done, the people that I'd hurt, the things that, that I'd done was, that I was so ashamed of. He made me face up to those things. And I think that's what God was doing with Jacob that night. I think he was making Jacob face up to the things that he'd done over his lifetime. I think there was a dialogue going on. I think he was saying to Jacob that this was the moment that he needed to change. And they wrestled. It wasn't just a physical wrestling match. There was a spiritual wrestling match going on there. And at the end of it, Jacob's given a new name to reflect a new identity. He's no longer the deceiver. He's he's someone that, that wrestles with God. You could almost say, actually, that on this night, it was kind of like Jacob's conversion experience. He started wrestling. He was... This guy that was a deceiver, a usurper, he comes out the other end of it, having been someone that's wrestled with God. Now he could face his Esau. See, he could never have faced Esau without that wrestling match. He could never have faced his past unless he'd done the business with God. 
He could never have faced up to the things that he'd done in his past without getting down in the dust with God. And it's just like that with us. You see, there's, there's no shortcuts. We live in a world where everything is sort of time-saving. Everything's a shortcut. Everything's a get-rich-quick scheme. And the church sometimes adopts these methodologies to try and sort of gain converts quicker, to do this quicker, to do that quicker. You can't do anything quick with God. Because at the end of the day, you have to get down in the dust with him. You have to be serious. You have to face up to the things that you've done in the past. That's not something that happens in the blink of an eye. That takes tenacity. It takes vulnerability. It it, it takes you having to own up to who you are and to look at yourself in the mirror in the light of who God is and understand that in the presence of God, we are nothing. As the Bible says, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags in his sight. No one is made righteous before God by works. It's by grace through faith. So many times I speak to people and they say to me that if I ask them, are you going to heaven? They will say yes. And I will say, why? Because they say I'm a good person. But being a good person is not what cuts the mustard with God. How can you be good enough for God? How can you be good enough for God? I mean, what, what's, what's the, how, how do you compare yourself with God who's holy, who's mighty? That, that's the yardstick. There's no one that can compare All you can do is compare yourself to each other. Pads might be better than one person, but another person might be better than pads. It's all subjective. If all you're doing is comparing yourself to one another, then you'll do that till you die. The only one that you can compare yourself is to God himself, and he's perfect. So if you think you're as perfect as God, then you're delusional. Because no one can stand in the presence of God without his saving grace you see this is the thing some of you all of you have your Esau to face you do you'll feel ill-equipped and feel fear in the confrontation that something from the past you never dealt with you know you could turn around and go back but then you know that's not an option You've done it before. You've got to get the wrestling done. You've got to sort it out with God. Today, if you hear his voice, don't run from him because it's time to wrestle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Your word's not a fairy tale. It's not like Aesop's fables. But your word is living and active and it's real. And it lasts from everlasting to everlasting. And there's things in your word that, if we've got ears to hear it, really speaks to us today in our lives. And we can look at it and we can relate to it and think, yeah, there's something in that 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 resonates with me. See, Lord, you know everything that there is to know about us. You knew everything that there was to know about Jacob. And yet, in your mercy, you gave him the opportunity to wrestle with you and to come out of it a changed man. 
And that's what you're in the business of. And Father, I thank you for that because you're in the business of taking people and salvaging their lives and bringing hope from the wreckage. Lord, I thank you that you rescue us from darkness and bring us into your glorious light. Father, thank you that there's no way that anyone can get to heaven except through the name of Jesus and by the blood. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, the name above every name, that this word will really go down into our hearts, that we'll ponder it, that we'll think on it, that we won't just walk out of here and forget it, and that your word will, will quicken to our spirits that it might change us. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.